This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming. We'll go ahead and get started. It's good to see so many people uh, here for our event. It's a nice, gloomy October day, so, you know, it's perfect to talk about zombies. but to brighten our day, we have some philosophers. So, you know, you talk philosophy, you always leave with a smile, so that's good. Uh, my name is Troy Swanson. I'm going to moderate the panel today. I'm the department chair here in the library. Just as a couple quick commercials, we have a few events left in our uh, One Book program. This is part of our One Book, One College program on World War Z. Copies in the bookstore and also for checkout in the library. Um, it, on October 23rd, we're going to be playing a campus-wide Um, zombie apocalypse game and it's free to play it's like a big experiment to see if we can infect 2,000 people uh, on campus so I want to encourage you to take a look at that it's going to be a unique thing we hope it works and uh, we hope you will play Um, with that why don't we get started I'd like to introduce our experts who are here to talk philosophy with us Um, today's panel is titled um, am I an individual or just a zombie Um, and we'll talk about what that means uh, we'll start at the end over here. This is Jeff Christ. He's a philosopher, full-time faculty member. And to, Hello. My, <laughs> to my right is uh, Aaron Smith, who's also a full-time faculty member in philosophy. Um, our colleague, Mary Barney, was supposed to join us today, but she's had a couple health issues come up and was unable to be here. So, you know, we give a shout-out to her and uh, hope she's doing well. So with that, uh, we'll get started. I'd like to start uh, just to get talking um, in philosophy. There's different types of zombies. Now, you may not know this, but I've learned this. Uh, There are the the literary, movie, book kind of zombies that we all kind of know, but there's this other kind of zombie called um, a philosophical zombie, and I'd like to start just to to get a quick distinction of what's the difference. What's a philosophical zombie? What's the kind of movie zombie that we know about? And I'll take that question. Um, so first of all, a philosophical zombie is actually kind of nothing like a movie zombie. A philosophical zombie is looks exactly like you, uh, looks exactly like me. In fact, if we were talking about philosophical zombies, I might be thinking right now that Troy and Jeff are philosophical zombies. And the issue is, is like in philosophy, we might think, how do I know whether or not they're a zombie? And the answer is, crap, I can't because... Uh, well, I look at Jeff, and he might be a zombie, and how do I know whether or not he's a zombie or a person? Well, I base all of my knowledge ab- about his zombiness or his personness based upon his external actions. Like, I can see the things that he's doing. He might be waving. He might be looking awkwardly because I'm talking about him, or he's, maybe I'm not talking in the mic enough. He's judging me. Um, you know, any, anything he could be doing. But a philosophical zombie actually has no conscious thought. So this sort of this gets to the sort of question of how do we know what someone else is thinking or if they're thinking at all? And this is a really deep philosophical problem um, because I know I'm thinking and you know you're thinking, but how do I know that you know that you're thinking? How do you know that I know that I'm thinking? And then we get confused and we drink coffee or something like that. But this is a philosophical problem, and it's kind of you know we philosophers geek out a lot because we write about zombies and literally if you google zombies philosophy you go to journals you will literally find 
thousands and thousands of articles on philosophers talking about zombies because this really gets into some deep problems. If, you take, if you've ever taken a 101 class here, we talk about epistemology. But this gets to the problem of other minds, but that's we're going to talk about that later in the talk. So philosophers, we talk a lot about zombies. We're really wondering whether or not you have consciousness, whether or not we have consciousness, and the upshot is it's really hard to tell sometimes. So. Okay, cool. Jeff, you want anything? Uh, Pretty much what Aaron said covers it, but uh, I'll add one thing. I mean, the, the notion of a, a philosophical zombie is what you might have heard of as a, a thought experiment meant to shed light on or possibly shed light on the issues that Aaron was mentioning. So how can I know that you are aware? It seems I can have direct first-person knowledge that I'm aware or, or conscious, but how can I know that you are? And then the same converse with you uh how can you know that I'm aware? So it's a, it's meant to sort of open up this issue for discussion and possibly shed light on it as a thought experiment. So as Aaron said, they're not philosophical zombies aren't rotting, you know, corpses walking around. So you wouldn't know just by observing them um, whether or not they are zombies or persons, as Aaron said. So cool, great. So I mean, frankly, rotting zombies that want to eat eat your brains um, are way cooler. So that's what we're going to talk about um, the rest of the time. Um, I'd like to start with um, a little bit out of our book, uh, World War Z. Um, we've had a, a number of events over the, the scope of our program on this book, um, and we've talked about a lot of things. You can find the recordings on the library website if you want to catch up, if you missed them. But one thing we haven't talked about is kind of the, the ethics that's at the heart of this book. Okay, So the book, just in case you haven't read it, is a collection of interviews uh, with survivors of a zombie apocalypse. Each person appear, appears to carry a great deal of guilt as a survivor. The guilt comes from um, a plan, the survival plan, which is known as the, the Redeker plan or the South African plan. In this plan, entire cities and army units are left behind as decoys. Uh, they're sacrificed to the zombies while the rest of the population runs away, fortifies an area, and then tries to rebuild society. This plan is at the heart of the book, and it brings up ethical questions. And we have not talked about those ethical questions, and what better time than when we have our own captive philosophers uh, to do so. So I wanted to start with this plan and ask, what are some philosophical perspectives regarding the Redeker plan, and how would you think about them as philosophers? Uh, I'll go ahead and start. Um, well, one very prominent ethical theory is the theory known as utilitarianism, um, which basically says that the morally right action um, is the action that has the best overall consequences for all society, um, considering in this case humans, not necessarily the zombies. So as I read it or understand it, the basic utilitarian take on the Redeker plan would be that it is, in fact, the right thing to do supposing, of course, that it succeeds, uh, which it did in the book. Uh, we know that from the first-person accounts that are the narrative structure of the book. Um, Aaron, you want to add anything? Or? Um, not really. I mean, I think the, the obvious difficulty is uh, when society's laws break down, uh, what do you do? And is it reasonable to implement, implement a moral theory when basically there's complete anarchy and chaos? It seems like moral theories work really well when we have uh, basic safety and uh, we can guarantee just simple things like food and shelter. But once you have a zombie apocalypse where everyone is on their own, it's really hard to say we ought to act morally. How do you make decisions about who should live and who should die? And that's it's also the heart of the Redeker plan, because basically what you're doing is you're saying, yep, you group of people over there, like this half of the room, you guys are going to die. Sorry, 
bummer. Uh, you guys, we like you. You're going to live. And that's a rational thing to do. And that strikes many people as deeply problematic because you're, quote, unquote, playing God. But in that situation, someone has to play God because we might ask in the book, well, should we wait for God? Well, God wasn't acting. Maybe God wants us to act. We could just start spinning our head in, in circles. And the reality is that someone has to make a decision, and it seems the best decision is what saves the most amount of people. And to do that, we have to sacrifice some people that we really care about. So, so to make it more complicated, I mean, how would um, a plan like this be compared to something if it wasn't a zombie apocalypse, like bird flu? I mean, what would what would feel different about a Redeker type plan for a real life disease like that? Um, I mean, I'm not a medical expert by any means, so take that under consideration with regard to what I'm about to say. But bird flu is, doesn't seem to have the um, you know pandemic. <laughs> proportions that the zombie apocalypse apparently did. Uh, and so in extreme circumstances, extreme decisions need to be made, as Aaron was sort of referring to in, in the sense of playing God, which strikes many people as um, lacking in compassion or maybe even not being fair in a certain sense of the term. But as Aaron said, it's rational if what's on the table is the possible future survival or extinction of the species per se. Um, so, yeah, and one of the other things is that there's a significant difference because we we might think about this like what would be best for me, but the reality is human beings we only can survive if we work well as a group. So, in the the possibility of a pandemic or something as awful as a zombie apocalypse or bird flu, um, we might have to make decisions, and that's really tough because I might say I could survive on my own without you guys. You know, you think of all the survivalists we see in the news, like building their giant bunkers of food and clothes, and they can say I can survive. But the reality is, human beings, we need large groups of human beings to survive. We cannot survive on our own. And then the, the, the question quickly moves to not whether or not I can survive, but what can I best do to make sure that everyone survives. But, man, that's a tough pill to swallow because I might say some people I really love and care about are going to die. I mean, imagine we have a pandemic today, and my wife and my son are in different parts of Chicago, and they draw a line across part of Chicago, and I'm on one side and they're on the other. Am I really going to be able to make a decision to say that my wife and my son will die? And, you know, my wife might be watching right now. Hi, and honey, yes, sorry, I'd let you die because that's a <laughs> rational thing to do. That's not compassionate and that's not emotional, but the reality is that's the decision that we have to make that's in everyone's best interest. But, oh, boy, that's where, like, people get up in arms with philosophers. So, well, but, you know, so this seems like, okay, there's no zombies, there's no pandemic going on, but in... I'm going to mess up the year, but it's like in the 20s or the 19-teens, there was a polio outbreak where in one summer, 9,000 people died. I mean, that's a lot of people all at once. In New Jersey, or it, this is in New York City, this, the state of New Jersey put National Guardsmen on the bridges and wouldn't let people leave the city, New York City into New Jersey because they were so frightened to get polio. And this was before the polio vaccine had been um, invented. And so people are making these decisions in real life over the course of history, right? And you could go back to the, the Black Death, bubonic plague kind of things. And uh, some of this isn't so abstract like Walking Dead. It's real. Right, right. I mean, any instance of quarantine is a sort of instance of what we're talking about. It just seems much more extreme in this, um, you know, hypothesized zombie apocalypse because of the severity of the disease and the the apparent decimation it has already, you know, wrought on the population as a whole. Right. Um, but I want to say a little bit more, too, about utilitarianism is not the only um, ethical view. It is one very prominent ethical view, but 
um, Kantian deontology, and Aaron can, I don't know, may perhaps disagree with me here, but I think that even a Kantian sort of theory, which the basic idea of that theory is the morally right thing to do is whichever action is sort of rationally or logically consistent if, if it's imagined to be what everyone who's rational would choose to do. And so now the morality of the situation is not sort of hanging on the consequences, but on the sort of the thought process. Is it logical or is it not logical? If it's logical, it's moral. So even Kant, I think, would want to say uh, no rational human being could rationally or logically say, I won't enact the Redeker plan because that seems to be the only thing, given the circumstances, that has even a chance of saving the species. Um, and, and I'm guessing there's a couple non-philosophers here. Who is Kant, just for a little history? Uh, Kant, who is Kant? Kant, yeah. Kant uh, Immanuel Kant, German philosopher, very famous in the history of philosophy, um, very influential in all areas of philosophy, really, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. Right. So if you've taken intro philosophy, you've probably stumbled on him somewhere or another. Okay, cool. I mean, there's more to be said here. I, I don't want to you know, monopolize the conversation, but there are other sorts of outlooks, too, that would sort of picking up on some of the things Aaron already said in terms of humans being social creatures by nature. So if you think of Aristotle's ethics, um, sort of focusing on human excellence as the goal that all people want to achieve, which involves developing certain sorts of character traits and habituating yourself into being a certain sort of person. Well, even that is predicated on the idea that humans are naturally social creatures, and this cannot happen in a vacuum. So if we're facing this sort of decimating, um, you know, ex extinction-wide species-threatening thing like the zombie apocalypse, it, even, even on that sort of theory, I think it would be predicted that the right thing to do is to enact admittedly an extreme plan, but the only one that really seems to have anything going for it. I mean, so... I mean, there's this utilitarianism. You're talking about rational decisions, this logic. But, you know, in, the, in these stories, and just as another advertisement, so let's say The Walking Dead, here's the graphic novel, which you can check out in the library. Um, we see all the time that the whole main thing is that the main character um, in Rick, and the same as in the TV show, does all kinds of really irrational things to save his family and to help his friends, right? And even sometimes betraying friends to help the family. And so, I, I mean, I, a lot of times in the stories, the films, that we're, you know, we're out busting zombie heads, they're not making rational decisions. Well, it comes down to the question of what is the nature of a rational thing to do. Um, I'm not sure we're using the term in the same way. Um, okay, yeah, help, help me. As I'm understanding it, it's, it's making a decision, you know, as, as Aaron sort of implied, based on logic and, and questions of, um, you know, from an Aristotelian perspective, what's going to happen, or in a utilitarian perspective, what's going to happen if we don't do this? Not to say that it's easy for any individual to make such a decision. I mean, Aaron says it's easy for him to sacrifice his wife. <laughs> I'm not sure that would be so easy for others. Um, so surely there can be other sort of aspects of our nature that might hinder our ability to make this decision. But that does not touch on the question of whether it is or not the right decision to make. Yeah. Uh, that's an objective question according to most philosophical yeah. outlooks. Well, in the in the last panel discussion, there was this question that came up with, and these were, you know, biologists and uh, emergency preparedness experts, not philosophers. But the question came up: if one of your family members was infected and was about to become a zombie, could you, you know, take that person down? You know, is that can you do that ethically? And that's a question that comes up in many films and many books around zombies. Aaron, we no can. 
Well, I haven't actually had to kill my wife yet, so <laughs> <laughs> let's hold off on that yet. one. I like All the yet. Yeah. It, it, this is hypothetical. Honey, in case you're listening, I don't want to kill you. Hi. Okay, so let's, let's uh, shift a little bit. Um, and we've, we've touched on some of this, but I'd like to talk about individuals and groups because I think zombie stories, zombie films, um, do play with this in some interesting ways, either being part of a group trying to get away from zombies, but also the individual versus the zombies. And uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Descartes, who uh, maybe we, you, I could get one of you to tell me who Descartes was, and then talk about his idea of the um, um, automaton, the automata, how do you say that? Automata. Yeah, thank you. The plural. And, um, how that would connect to the zombie metaphor. Sure. Uh, first of all, Rene Descartes was a philosopher. He lived about 400 years ago, give or take a little bit. Um, and he's actually deeply, deeply, deeply influential. Um, basically, if you've ever gone into just, he's influential in random ways. If you've ever looked at a map and said, wow, there's a grid on a map, and you're like, hey, you got some coordinates on the map. You know who invented those coordinates? Descartes. They're called, called the Cartesian grid. And just think about that. Prior to Descartes, no one actually had the idea that you could like apply mathematics to a map. So I mean, Descartes is a smart guy, but he's also a really just you know top ten philosopher all time, and he's just a really really deep powerful thinker. One of the things that Descartes is known for is his meditations, which a lot of you've probably read in your intro philosophy classes. And one of the things that Descartes does there is he talks about that uh, he says like cogito ergo. Now he doesn't actually say it there, but just bear with me for the sake of argument. So I think therefore I am cogito ergo sum. And the general idea of that is that I know that I'm a thinking thing. And he's trying to build a foundation for science and trying to talk about why we know science can work. But for purposes of our discussion, his very idea that he knows he's a thinking thing, he gives us primacy. And he makes a real distinction between being a thinking thing and what your thoughts are and then your body. And he separates minds from bodies. And this is called dualism. And it's... Um, metaphysical theory about the differences about like my body's just a physical thing and then my consciousness is kind of just inhabiting my body and this is a very powerful idea and it really really changes western society and if you want to know how hey take a philosophy class but for today we've got this real strong distinction because we have zombies lurching around and we start to think about like what's the difference between my body and their body obviously we're very similar but yet what seems to be my difference, as I would say as a philosopher, is my consciousness is fundamentally different, right? I could be a leper and, like, dropping nothing against lepers, but I could be dropping limbs and acting a lot like a zombie, but yet my consciousness could be purely intact. So if we really think about the differences, then it, it's not just the differences in our body. The differences in, uh, for zombies and humans is our minds and our consciousness, and that's at least what I would draw from this. And then I'd toss the torch over to my colleague. Uh, yeah, I mean... To build off of that, then this also touches just on the more general question of what is a person, or, and then that is clearly going to tie back into the ethical issues we've already been discussing. You know, why is it okay to kill a zombie? Uh, one of the answers might be basically because they're not a person. Um, they don't have consciousness. So that's maybe what makes it okay to kill a zombie, although that doesn't touch on the rhetoric or issues of leaving others behind uh, as the bait, say. But... Sure, and we could even pick up on that, just that idea of like killing a zombie. Think about most of, how many of you are environmentalists who would say like you're against species extinction? Do you think species are like, it's nice to have new species around? I am, like right, I generally think exterminating species is, is tragic. I, I wish I could wake up and see passenger pigeons, like literally a flock of billions of pigeons flying over. I mean, that sounds impressive and incredible. But then think about what it would mean to wipe out all the zombies. 
I mean, we're, they're new species. Are we justified in wiping them out? Yeah, they want to eat us or, you know, whatever. But they're a threat. But polar bears hunt human beings, and I don't think it's okay to, you know, kill all polar bears. So is it ethical to end all zombies if they're just a threat? Is it just because we don't like them? Is it because they're ugly? Why? What's a, what do we have against zombies? I mean, there are scientific questions involved here, of course, is are zombies a species, or is it the virus, say, if that's what it is, within them that's making them do what they do? And we don't, at least historically, have not had so many problems wiping out viruses or eradicating or at least trying to eradicate bacterial invaders um, or other kinds of parasites. So whatever it is that's the sort of biological etiology or causation, causative factor that makes a person stop being a person and become a zombie, if that's what we're trying to eradicate, then that would actually fit, you know, historical models of let's get rid of polio, let's get rid of AIDS, let's get rid of these other scourges on the human race. Maybe maybe we'd say we don't want to cause all polar bears to go extinct, but if that one polar bear is chasing me right now and I kill it, um, we might think that's all right. Supposing polar bears um, en masse suddenly started trying to destroy all humans, we might change our views <laughs> right. in that regard as well. Uh, uh, Not to say that that's the right thing. Uh, of course, that's a different question. Right. I don't want to hedge too much, but that's very typical of philosophers in any case. So, See if they actually say anything today. So to get back to the, to the um, idea of dualism, I mean, this does, commu- this does transfer over into to real life, right? Because, I mean, not too long ago, there's the, like, the Terry Schiavo case where, you know, person on life support is their brain activity. Is it ethical to turn off life support and end a life? And is that really ending a life? And these are... I mean, unfortunately, these are things that we all, at some point or another, may have to deal with, with loved ones, selves, and, and those kind of things. So dualism is fun and exciting when we're attacking zombies, but maybe not so. Um, has some real powerful implications in, in real life. Absolutely. Just a point of clarification. You could not be a dualist and still believe it's okay to end someone's life. Like, In fact, most philosophers today are no longer dualists. I mean, that's just... Though most people are in the United States, which is this really interesting dichotomy between philosophers accept as true and what most people do. Because if I were betting, I would bet most of you think you have some sort of concept of a soul. Or how many of you think you have a soul? Raise those hands. Yeah, I mean souls. I mean if you if you really really believe your soul, you are saying that you're a dualist. But yet, I bet if you thought about it, you probably wouldn't be a dualist. Because man, it's really hard to actually be a dualist once you think about it. But you could also be a person. And how many of you think you're a person? Okay, but yeah, raise your hands. That's good. Uh, do you know why you're a person? <laughs> yeah, I see one student I had in a prior semester like, yeah, I heard that lecture. Um, some of us might say we're persons, and for the most part, philosophers and other people today have something to do with our consciousness and the abilities that we have. But it's a really, really hard, open-ended question about what makes a person a person. And this is a really powerful medical ethics issue for end-of-life care, because 50 years ago, Literally, someone who was dead, and you're just like, you look at them like, yep, you're a corpse, you're dead. But now think about what happens today. We can keep people alive literally for decades. Decades. Just like sitting in a coma or having very little brain activity. Like, is that person a person? Is that human a person? These are really, really powerful questions. And we certainly don't have consensus on this as a society. right? This is just a very, very difficult issue. And we're at some point, we will have consensus, I'm sure. But today, it's just one of those... Uh, fun questions that philosophers get to think about. Not only philosophers, but I would say just scientists more generally, uh, biologists. Uh, I mean, presumably they know some things about life, but not everything. So 
we might hypothesize that to be their goal, but they don't seem to know that collectively. Like, what is it to be alive? Like, even that basic a question is not fully understood by the experts on life, namely biologists. So no questions seem to be easy uh, when we come to such issues. Well, and I, and I would just, even to broaden it more, I mean, the idea of is interdisciplinary studies is so popular and important because even if you're a sociologist studying religion or you're um, a writer, maybe you're studying literature, I mean, these are all, you know, issues that get to what it means to be us, and it crosses a whole lot of boundaries, so for sure. This is probably a good point. I can see so many inquisitive minds. Is, are there any audience questions that we've provoked? Have we made zombies? in the audience. Yes. yes. Hang on, I'll, I'll play talk show host. Oh, I've got a loud mouth. I know, but the recording won't hear you if I don't. Is the caller there? Oh, wonderful. Um, this is a question for Professor Christ. You mentioned that with the Rediger plan that you can see, you know, a deontological argument be for that, but how do you reconcile the clear use of the people being sacrificed mm -hmm. as a means to an end? Um, my deepest philosophical views are that deontology is false as an ethical theory. So that's how I would oh, reconcile it. I would see, um, I see contradictions in Kant's view overall. Um, he claims fundamentally that consequences have no bearing on the moral status of an action, but I don't see that actually working out in his own examples as he tries to prove the categorical imperative in any, any of its formulations, neither as the not using people as means but treating them only as ends formulation nor in the act only on a maxim that is consistently universalizable with no logical contradictions formulation. So everyone, that may, that may seem a dodge. Us? That All may right. seem to be. What I'm saying is I don't think Kant's theory is correct. And I think Jeff's wrong. <laughs> uh, and there may be a couple places you could say that. One is that Kant also writes about that we do need a civil society uh, in order to be able to sort of achieve our rational ends and to be truly moral. So Kant writes, and this is like the Kant's metaphor is like, yeah, you know, ethics only works so far as the cannons can shoot. Well, once you get offshore, you know, those pirates are out there and they can do whatever they want on the high seas. Similarly, the metaphor means like if we don't have uh, civil society and we don't have rules and laws and government, then ethics and morality just kind of fall away right. because we can't enforce them. Okay, so I see, I see one questioning face for sure. So, I mean, I've heard this a couple times from you guys now that the breakdown of society may make it okay. We need civil society to have morality. I mean, this seems like... Maybe. Maybe. I don't... I mean... Maybe. I don't think Plato would agree with that. I mean, this... In yeah, zombie, see, zombie, this zombie apocalypse <laughs> stories, just to get back to my zombies... Well, let me this just... It's a big thing, right? If the, the, the National Guardsmen outside of New Jersey will look different than The Walking Dead, where there's no society and zombies want to eat my face, right? So what does society do that matters? It's one thing to say that we need civil society laws, rules, etc., to make people behave in the ways we typically call moral or right. It's another thing altogether to say that those things are the nature or essence of rightness or morality or justice, as Plato would have it. I wouldn't want to say that. I think you're definitely right to sort of hedge a bet there. But I might also add that maybe a civil society allows us the conditions for flourishing that we need in order to truly become moral. So we might go back to the Greeks and talk about in order to be a virtuous person, I would have to be able to have the conditions that would allow me to flourish. But, yeah, I mean, this is where, like, if it sounds like philosophers, we're just hedging a lot because we are, because it's not like there's consensus on 
what do you do in a zombie apocalypse? What's moral to do? I mean, this is really, really hard questions. Like, we could talk about, there are philosophers who write about this in terms of, like, what's legal or moral to do in war. I mean, there, there are people who talk about just war theory and say, like, well, this might be conditions of war. So there's, like, different rules of engagement and morality that apply to, say, soldiers, and we would accept this today in Afghanistan or Iraq, but then... They, those soldiers can't do those same things that that was okay for them to do overseas here. But then we also might say there's even limits to what soldiers can do. We're generally not okay with soldiers just randomly killing civilians. So yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I think back to when we started bombing Iraq with uh, George Bush, and he was totally referencing, I think, Augustine, right? I mean, talking about just war theory like this. You may think that these guys, you know, knowing philosophy, what is it going to do for me? But these are things that. Presidents, I mean, that we—if you're voting and you live in our society—that matter, right? That these are things that come back up, and it, the zombies are kind of a big thought experiment. But some of it will take us down um, some of these paths. And so, to get back to our notes, um, I think this does connect to the discussions of individual and the group when we're talking about society and rules. And I'd like to get to this idea of what does it mean to be authentic, and how do philosophers use that word authentic as a human being? shift into a new subject right there. I'll start. Um, first of all, authenticity is one of those things like, it's a fuzzy concept, we've often heard it, but basically there's a whole group of philosophers called existentialists, and they're, you can trace them back to the early part of the 19th century, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about what authenticity means. It means to for you to be you. But think about what that means. Like, how do you know what it means to be you? I mean, this is the philosophical question because your ideas of what it means to be you are, like, you know, right now you're a student sitting here in this classroom. What is it that you want to do? What is it you want to be? And you're trying to figure out what are my own ideas because we often think about ourselves as individuals. This is a common idea in Western society. Like, I'm an individual. What should I do? What should I be? And then, but the problem is, is we've all gotten all these information. Like, we're all constantly bombarded with media. We're all constantly having other people condition us like right like i may want to be a philosopher but man you could look at my past and say gee his mother was a minister his mother his grandfather was a minister and they were asking all sorts of philosophical questions so it's just sort of natural so the question that i have today is like is it authentic for me to want to be here in front of you and how do i know and the problem is i can't ever really know because that's always a decision that we have to know Right? It's, uh, it's up to us. And so authenticity is us making his choice to be whatever it is that we want to be and living that. The problem is, is this, we might take the sort of idea of individuality versus the group and say, like, you're an individual if you've truly become authentic, if you know what it is to be you. We also might add the uh, idea from Socrates of leading an examined life. But then contrast that with a zombie. Like as a philosopher, I read this book and I thought, wow, this idea of zombies is really, they're just talking about us. For the most part, most people in Western society are, are zombies because they're not really individuals. And the zombie horde that's like threatening to eat our brains and is just really just about us. It's like mass market. It's consumerism. It's all of these sort of factors that are in our lives that are just sort of pulling us down, forcing us not to be individuals. As if we've been co-opted by the... You know, the forces, the societal forces around us, you're playing a role. I think that's kind of what you're getting at a little bit, Aaron, right? Like this notion of always playing a role and having that role define you rather than you sort of standing in that role and choosing it. You know, sort of a self-reflective choice. I will do this or I will be this. That's one notion of authenticity. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? 
but then every time you make a choice, you still are, posed, are forced to answer the question, how do I know that the choice I'm making is what I really, really want to make? Like, what I, I mean, think about you woke up this morning, you had some breakfast, hopefully, unless you are, believe in a nutritious meal, but what kind of food did you have? Is it food that you really, really want to eat, or is it just stuff that you just kind of happen upon? But if it's something that you really, really want to eat, how do you know that's what you really, really want to eat? Have you gone and experienced thousands of other breakfasts? Do you re have you really made an informed decision about what kind of breakfast is good for you, or you're just eating the stuff that your parents put in front of you from when you're a kid and you're just used to it? And that's a banal example, but that's really kind of also what we're getting at. Is like, how do you know what it means to be you? So in, in our last panel, uh, Jason King, who's our resident zombie expert on campus, uh, and I've heard him make this comment a couple times that maybe zombies, and in, in, in some films, they, uh, filmmakers and storytellers make this argument, that the zombies are really perfect people. They don't fight with each other. They get along with each other. They all kind of just walk together. They have one goal, and they cooperate very well just to find a person and kill them. Right? I mean, why, why is that so bad? Why would a philosopher, and that gets this idea of being authentic, right? That's I mean, they may be perfect zombies. That's not to say they're perfect people or perfect persons. Um, but I want to go back, actually, sorry to backtrack here, but just to something Aaron said about the, the Socratic, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. There, there, that what Aaron was expressing is definitely one uh, powerful notion of authenticity, but I think we can, even philosophers who didn't necessarily use that term or make that term or that concept central in their theories can still be understood as sort of arguing for some sort of authenticity. So just to use Socrates as an example, and hopefully there will be a tie-in here with the individual versus the group. I mean, he was certainly an iconoclast. Anyone who knows anything about his history, he was bucking the system. He was told by the oracle at the Delphic um, Temple that he's the wisest person in all, and he thought, how can this be true? I, I don't know anything. I'm going to go prove the God wrong. I'm going to talk to wise people and show that I'm not as wise as they are. Therefore, the God is wrong. In the process, he ended up discovering He's the wisest person precisely because he knows that he doesn't know anything. And this sort of sets him off on this continuing lifelong journey of trying to find out. This put him at odds greatly with the powers that be and actually eventuated in his own death. You know, he was convicted of a capital crime and sentenced to, to die and was executed. Um, but he's authentic in the sense that he's trying to find the truth. I mean, that's how he saw authenticity and he in so doing he's acting against the prescribed norms of his own society and his own group but all on the assumption on his behalf i think that he's doing this for the best of all he's making everyone around him think and that's never a bad thing it can only be a good thing so it's this interesting kind of i don't want to say paradox but tension if you will between his individuality is precisely sort of prescribed or circumscribed by the fact that he's bucking the trends, but he he sees himself as doing this for not just the good of himself, but of course for the good of all of those around him as well. So maybe the authenticity, authenticity question in the individual versus the group are sort of not separable ultimately, like they can only be answered together, uh, and that may be the nature of human personhood partially. And that could also just be the problem that we have. We're, we're all members of groups, and we're all just like, you know, we all think of ourselves as individuals. I mean, this is like a great American thing. Like, we're like, yes, we're individuals, but yet, if you look around, you say, I'm an individual. Like, for me, when I was in high school, man, I was 
part of a, you know, wow, I thought I was just a badass. You know, I was, you know, living in the suburbs and I had a purple mohawk and man, I was an individual. And then if you looked around and found, you could have found kids exactly like me, like bored suburban teenagers in every city in the United States at the exact same time who looked exactly like me and I thought I was an individual. And the reality was I was just following social trends that I had no idea about. And that's sort of the, the position that we're in. We're, we want to be individuals, yet we're group. We're part of a group, but yet the group is necessary for us to survive, but we want to be individuals. And then how do we define ourselves? What does it mean to be us? And you start to see this, like, philosophical idea of existentialism. Uh, prior to zombie books, you could see this. There's all sorts of wonderful novelists in the early part of the 20th century. I just will give a big shout-out to Camus, who I just think is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and any taking the lit class, check out, if you get a chance to read Camus, it's just awesome. Of course, some people say Camus is depressing. I think it's really uplifting. You may not have to go take a lit class. You could just go to the library. Oh, my gosh. Oh, in the library? Look, you can get a book in the library? Kafka. Yeah, Yeah. I I was thinking Kafka along the same lines. And these are, these are, these ideas really just impact the 20th century. I mean, people came up with these ideas of existentialism, and, and they really came out of a lot of people writing about the horrors of war, surviving the horrors of war, thinking about what it means to survive in World War II. Like, how do you get to be a person when everything is just falling apart around you. What does it mean to be you? And is the you that you are, is that worth living? Do you really want to to live that life? I mean, if mass market consumerism leads you down this road of just being, you know, having a white picket fence in the suburbs with your two kids and waking up one day and just thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my existence? To go back to um, what you mentioned, Troy, about Jason, um, another take on that would be, so there's a, there's a theme, and Aaron's the expert on existentialism, not me, but um, there is, I think, a theme in some of the existentialist writing, both um, literary and philosophical existentialism, of is rationality such a good thing after all? Anyway, it, it, throughout the history of Western philosophy, it has been sort of held up as the pinnacle. This is what humanness is. This is what sets us apart. This is what's so great about us. And the existentialist can be seen as sort of turning that on its head if you think of Dostoevsky and uh, Notes from Underground or Kafka and the Metamorphosis, what's so great about being aware and rational, given that after the horrors of World War II, look what that rational ability has done. It has created you know, weapons that can destroy millions or billions at a time, the, the bomb and so forth, and has led us down this primrose path to the aftermath of World War II. So it sort of turns all these traditional notions from the history of philosophy almost on their heads. Um, Looking at our time, let's uh, let's get into one more question on the um, on epistemology, and we'll keep it focused. We have time for a couple questions from the audience. Um, I think there's an interesting thing, and maybe it's just because I'm a library nerd and I live in an information world um, about uh, epistemology in zombie narratives, and that's knowledge about what's happening around you. And so maybe we could start with a quick definition of what is epistemology, and then maybe talk about how that works in zombie stories. I mean, in a general sense, epistemology is a theory of or study of knowledge. So it's sort of trying to get clarity on what it is to know, um, what's the difference between knowledge and other states of mind, what, what conditions need to be satisfied in order for someone to be truly knowing something versus merely believing it or hoping it or wishing it or wanting it or other states of mind. And so let's jump into some of the zombie narratives. I mean, how, would it, how does epistemology work around zombies? Well, some of the questions is, is, I mean, this is just sort of real-time decision-making. Imagine you're in the middle of a zombie narrative. You're in The Walking Dead or World War Z or some other 
situation where you're having to make decisions. I mean, that's a fundamental epistemological decision. It's like, how much knowledge do you have? And if you study epistemology, you realize we'll never have all knowledge. We'll never know everything. So any decision that we have to make, we have to make with incomplete knowledge. So we might wonder, how much knowledge is it? do you need to know to make a decision? So, for example, you see someone get bit by a zombie. Well, are they going to turn into a zombie or not? Like, I mean, this is a real life-threatening situation. I mean, because if this is a member of your group, you have four or five people, do you kill this person? Do you wait to see if they turn? How do you approach that? And so that's just like a basic epistemological question of like trying to find out like how much knowledge is necessary to make a decision and then how do you get that knowledge? And from a scientific point of view, the obvious point with uh, with waiting to find if someone gets bit by a zombie, you just maybe quarantine them and watch. And then, then you're stuck with the ethical decision of what do you do after they turn into a zombie. It also connects to the Redeker plan um, sort of collectively. Like, I mean, part of the um, impetus for that plan, presumably within the narrative, was they didn't know how to fix zombieism. Whatever, whatever the disease was, supposing it to be a disease, they didn't know how to fix it. And presumably if they had known that, they may have come up with a different plan, um, and that would have obvious ethical implications. But um, there's not enough time, perhaps, to do that, given the sort of exigencies of the situation. So if you're in this group of five and you don't have, especially if you're not a scientist, you don't even have the wherewithal to do the research. But um, not to give away any spoilers, but there's an interesting sort of connection here with some of the Walking Dead uh, in the CDC, and they're trying to get there because they're the experts, if anyone is, on the disease. So... I don't know if it gives it away or not, but, you know, if you haven't seen the first season of Walking Dead, we have it on DVD in the library. But it, it kind of annoyed the heck out of me that, you know, you show up at the end of the season and, oh, here's a scientist to explain everything to you about the zombie virus that's killing everyone. It's much more interesting to not know, I think. And also, even though obviously not realistic, but realistic for us in ways, I think about the vaccine debates that are going on where almost no credible doctor on in the in the U.S., thinks that vaccines cause harm, but there's this under, there's this population of people who think that vaccines are harmful and they're putting kids at risk by not getting vaccinated. That's my personal views on this, but um, it's very controversial. But again, to go back to The Walking Dead, we don't get this voice from above telling us this, this virus is evil, this is going to help you. You have to make decisions with incomplete knowledge all the time. Yeah, you're doing it on sort of on the ground, as it were, you know, running yeah, so, try to make the best yeah. choices for you. But that's also sort of about epistemology because it's sort of like in making a decision, you have to sort of evaluate sources. Can I trust this source? I mean, that, and that's just a position all of us are in dealing with the Internet. I mean, for example, you go on the Internet and try to find information, just like, well, what's a good source? What's not a good source? Like, how do you evaluate that? What do you make decisions? So you're like, well, it's on the library website, so it must be valuable. Exactly. That's, that's where I was going, Troy. I got your back. Um, but other sites, I mean, how do you make decisions? And this is a huge problem that you guys have is because we literally can access, like, all of human knowledge just, you know, with a smartphone. I mean, my God, that's incredible. But at the same time, there's a lot of really awful knowledge out there, stuff that probably doesn't count as knowledge. Misinformation. So then, or, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Uh, but mis misinformation. Knowledge. Right, it's hard to make that. Dis I mean, that's what you're saying, though, obviously. Um, I'll shut up now so you can... Well, continue. people count it as knowledge. So, I mean, okay. that's the problem. It's just like people, like, what makes knowledge knowledge? Is it, is it just the fact that you believe it? Or is it the fact that it's published? Is it the fact that it's peer-reviewed? And, I mean, this is also a big philosophical question. So, but... 
You've exhausted that one. I'll move over to Troy. Okay, so let's uh, end with uh, Stump the Philosophers. There's got to be questions in the audience. Season four of Walking Dead starts in a few weeks. Here's your chance to get them to talk about that. Yeah. But no spoilers about season three. Yeah, I'm, I'm still watching season three, so please don't. I'm on season two. Hi. Okay, so my big question is, uh, obviously you have to make decisions for a whole group, right? And then you have to keep moving, keep running, like, you know, keep civilization going why <laughs> what is the point <laughs> that's an existential question uh and, <laughs> and well an ethical done. one i would say i mean uh, uh, but they could be both oh it's truly we'll give you your best i'll take the existential you got the ethical jeff <laughs> sure um so the existential one <clears throat> figure that out i mean i think it's a very reasonable thing i to say at the end of like you know oh my gosh you know all society is ending i mean i think it's a reasonable point of view to say you know what I don't want any part of that. Give me a shotgun. I'll take care of myself. Everyone I've loved or cared about is dead. I'm wandering around the woods. It's a tough life. I don't want to be a part of it. Like, so just let me go off and end my life on my own terms. I'm not depressed. I'm not, I guess I would be suicidal if I ended my own life. But that seems a very reasonable thing to do. But then another point would be to answer the question, that's just the same position we're always in. It's just like, you know, this is an awful world out there. There's all kinds of bad stuff that can happen. And my, one of my favorite philosophers, Nietzsche, would just say, you know what? Just, you know, make a decision and seize the day and just, like, are you willing to live in the face of the consequences of all of these awful things that are going on? And if so, embrace that. Go with that. And you just have to live that way. But then again, you may be wrong. Maybe you should have laid down your weapons and put a shotgun in your mouth. But it seems also reasonable to keep living. But every day you're faced with that choice. Are you going to say yes to life? Are you going to embrace it and and stay positive about your decisions? Or are you just going to say, nah? Hmm. Jeff? There's, I mean, aside from the parameter of, like, you have to make this choice, which surely seems true in one way, there's also, um, not all philosophers would agree with this, of course, but there's a strong strain in the history of, of philosophy, Western philosophy at least, that would just say, that's just what's good to do. I mean, that's part of the reason why. Not that just saying it is a convincing argument that it is, but if that is what's good to do and, and or right to do morally or ethically then that's reason enough to do it. Um, so there can be objective truths, say, about what's good and bad, and supposing that to be one of them, then that's a reason to do it. That's not enough necessarily to make or to convince everyone to do it, and surely some people won't be convinced. But the mere fact that some people are not convinced that the truth is the truth does not make it not the truth. I mean, my five-year-old son does not know that 2 plus 3 equals 5. He puts 6 down as his answer that doesn't make it true that it's six furthermore it doesn't make it a good answer it's a bad answer so i mean that's one way to sort of have a general outlook on it and then more would need to be said of course in terms of convincing individuals here's why it's good here's why you should do it et cetera et cetera et cetera okay other questions Thanks. Um, unlike last time, this is like for both of you, I assume. I really don't know what I'm talking about, so I'll give it a shot. Um, we've already kind of established that Rene Descartes, with this thought process, you know, we think, therefore we am. We have no empirical evidence to understand that other individuals have a consciousness, and we've determined that that's what determines personhood. With that being said, can we also say we're not, we can't say definitively that, say, zombies don't have a consciousness and possibly have a low-level one? So with that being said... How is that justifiable to go around killing zombies when they might just have a 
very low level of consciousness, but consciousness nonetheless. I don't know if you can answer that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think some would want to say we, we have some empirical evidence that people have consciousness. I think the Cartesian point is we can never know that for sure, and therefore we can't, if we can't be certain, we can't know. But that's not the same as saying we have no evidence for. So behavioral analogies or just observing the behavior of people it stands as some empirical evidence that, hey, they are conscious. And observing the behavior of a person in a persistent vegetative state is empirical evidence of a certain kind that they are not conscious or at least have a lower level of consciousness. That being said, that doesn't really answer the rest of your question about zombies. How do we not how do we know they don't have any consciousness, rather maybe just some low level of consciousness? In the face of a real zombie apocalypse, if you're one of these people and they're coming at you, you don't even have time to make that sort of decision, presumably, even if you have the sort of expertise that would be necessary to establish, you know, standard scientific practices that might go so towards sort of answering that question, right? But... um so I'm sort of rambling here, but... I can jump in. Go ahead, yeah. We also might say, or we generally accept that, that we have different levels of moral obligations to different things. Like, for example, we might say I have a different moral obligation to any of you in the audience as a person, as a human being who's sitting here in the audience versus, say, my lovely Starbucks cup. I mean, most of you would think I'd be kind of weird if I just, you know, flattened this and threw it in the trash can. But you'd be like, that's, he's just a weird philosopher. But then imagine if I had my son Isaac here and flattened him and threw him in his trash can. You'd be like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. like, please arrest me. And please, if I did that, please arrest me. Um, but So we can say that there's different sort of moral obligations to different types of things. So then the question is, what sort of moral obligations might we owe to different, like, different types of animals based upon levels of consciousness? Like going back to what we talked about earlier, we might say, well, you know what? I have very little moral obligation to say a virus or a bacteria. But what about uh, a cat, Hmm. a chimpanzee, a dolphin? And we might say that, for example, some higher primates might actually approximate human beings in their level of intelligence and and levels of consciousness that they have. Not you guys in the audience, but there's some very low-level functioning human beings that have the consciousness, conscious levels of, like, say, a two- or three-year-old. So if a dolphin approximates those, we may say, okay, yeah, you have the same obligations as a human being, but then... The zombie in your question is very, very low down on that list. Like, what, what does it mean to be a low-level functioning zombie? Is that, like, the level of a virus? Is it functioning at the level of a marmot? I mean, I don't think I have any great moral obligation to a marmot. Maybe I should. Maybe it'd be nice of me to ensure that marmots don't feel pain and suffer needlessly. But at the same time, I, I think we can all say that there's a real significant difference between you guys and marmots. And if we don't accept that, I, I mean... I don't think we're all equal. I think there's some real significant differences we need to take into account. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Thanks. Uh, other questions? Yes. Hi. Sorry. To go back to um, I'll stand up. To go back to the uh, zombie question, um, and if you can kind of analyze a zombie and see whether or not they're at a vegetative state. To refer to a person who is at a vegetative state, how would you be able to tell what, at what point are they a psychological zombie? And who is to declare uh, a neurologist, a philosophist, who would, like, how would you decide that? Well, that's still an open question, even for, like, real humans who are in vegetative states. I would say, I mean, that's not, um, 
the jury's still out on that mm-hmm. um, in terms of even people who are comatose. And there's levels of comatose, of course, too. So um, it's, I would say, in a general way, again, I'm no scientific expert per se, but it's determined by sort of, you know, empirical tests of their brainwave patterns and then correlating those brainwave patterns with observed behaviors um, in normal, quote-unquote, humans as compared to observed behavior or lack thereof in people who are in this state, this vegetative state or what have you. So, And we also might add that this is also a place where we'd want to be really precise because we used to just say, oh, someone's brain dead or in a coma. But there's some actual real significant differences in if you're in a persistent vegetative state and how you got in that persistent vegetative state. Was it... Did you have massive amounts of loss of oxygen, which would in, which would then correlate to like significant brain damage? And then there are people who are in persistent vegetative states who are not responsive, who didn't have any brain damage, and so their brains are generally fine. So they would have a much higher level of brain function, and we can measure this. Um, and then there's like some amazingly cool research that people are doing based on brain imaging, and like, actually you can communicate with people who are in persistent vegetative states by just asking them to sort of image different things. And then we could go back to Terry Schiavo, who Troy mentioned earlier on, and we were, I think, I mean, we'd never be absolutely sure that she couldn't function, but wow, she had such massive amounts of brain damage that it would be truly miraculous if she was able to sort of communicate or function on any sort of significant level as a human being. So, but again, this also goes back to what Jeff was saying, which is that it's based upon ev- evidence and observation, and we should probably err on the side of not pulling the plug and not killing thing, humans that we think are people be, just because we're like, oh, you're brain dead. Because we want to make sure that we have a really good definition because there's no do-overs when, you, when mm-hmm. you do that. What this also tells us is in a general way that perhaps so-called ethical or moral decisions, they can't be made in a vacuum independent of what we know, as we might say, scientifically about the cases or that type of case in general. Um, so... Okay, good. Uh, how about one more question from the audience? Oh, Stump the Philosopher. Yes. Okay. This is more of a broad question. So with all the popularity of, like, zombie literature, I mean, apocalyptic literature has been around since, like, the World, World War One with the bomb and everything like that. But lately, like, more recently, since, like, 2004 or so, it's been hugely popular, like, with The Walking Dead, World War, World War Z, like, um, Everything, just everything. Is there any, like, do you think there's any, like, underlying philosophy of why it's become increasingly more popular in today's age? Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I don't really have a specific answer as to why. Presumably there is an answer, but, um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting metaphor to that, can serve as like a launch pad, if you will, for the sort of thing we're doing right now. Um, it, not that it's the only metaphor. Uh, maybe, like, the, it, it brings up the, okay, zombies, we think we all know, oh, someone who's rotting and wants to eat your brain or the rest of you too, I don't know, right? But but what it does philosophically is it's a, it's a sort of really almost, I don't want, tangible is not the right word, but easy to latch onto entree into what is a person? How do we decide what's right to do? It, so it gives these, what are sometimes very abstract philosophical questions, a more impactful, sort of hits you in the gut sort of thing. And that's, um, it's catching on in the zeitgeist. That doesn't answer your question. It just basically says what you said. But 
Maybe it's just popular. I mean, maybe, I mean, you could look at just like, I'm sure we could go back to say 1200 and, uh, okay, say 1800 and find certain things in popular literature that like certain trends and themes that we look back on and go like, what were they talking about? What were they interested in? Uh, you know, a hundred years from now, they may look back on the popularity of zombie things and think like, wow, they're just like kind of creepy. Like, why are they freaked so focused on, you know, half dead rambling human beings who are threatening to eat them? I mean, this is a very, I mean, this is a poignant metaphor for maybe us and what we think about our society. I mean, and there's a lot of great ways to analyze that question. You could talk to someone who does like Americana studies. You could talk to a historian. You could talk to uh, a literary person. I mean, really, I, as a philosopher, I'd, I, I'd say probably has something to do with just sort of our underlying dissatisfaction with our lives and we sort of put ourselves in the position of zombies and we're focused on this question of an individual. But that's also because I, I, I like existentialism and that's how I tend to approach a lot of questions because I'm an existentialist gasp, I know. Well, I'm so yeah, early I mean, 20th century. Also, just sort of the, the what are we question. Like, how do we know that? Um, and the zombies can serve as a foil. Um, we're not those, so what are they and what does that tell us about what we are? Um, as a literary foil. You, know? you could also think about, just like turn on TV and think about like, just think about all the cop shows. I mean, this is like a phenomenon of the last like 10, 12 years or maybe 20 years. Like, why are we so interested in watching people get murdered and killed and then you, you pay attention to what issues we focus on uh, if you watch news or political discourse. You're like, oh my God, people got shot. I mean, we rarely focus on really good things that people are doing. And why not focus? I mean, when was the last time you saw a story about philosophers doing awesomeness in the world? I mean, that is not on Friday night TV. You don't see people doing good in the world. Like, it's often like, you know, murders, death, mayhem, zombies. And frankly, I like that TV, right? I love Dexter. I like watching, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's just a product of our society, or it might be. I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean look, think of Shakespearean, um, you know, plays and all the awful things that people do to each other. It's it's good entertainment for some reason, or Greek tragedy, Oedipus, you know, I mean. Murder, death, mayhem, sex with your mother. Oh, yes, that's what we ended the conversation on, Oedipus, yes, philosophers. Thanks. Okay, so with, with that, um, I want to thank everyone for coming. You know, I think... In this, you know, academic world, if you want to come and learn about Descartes and you want to learn about Kant and you want to learn about Oedipus, obviously, you know, come into the library, check out some books. But I think, on the other hand, the reason that we have these kind of fun books and novels and literature is that there's ways to think about these philosophical questions um, without necessarily wading into the heavy philosophy because it does take some training and some work at times to take their classes. But we hope that you will engage in these discussions and, uh, and join the debate, because that is what makes us authentic, I hope, and also um, engaged in our world. With that being said, October 9th, we have a panel discussion on zombies in pop culture. So take a look at that. I don't want to say the time, because I don't know it off the top of my head, but look online. What time? 1 p.m., October 9th. And starting October 23rd is our Human vs. Zombies zombie apocalypse game. We hope you will all play. Thank you for coming, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.